You're listening to audio from Calvary Baptist Church of Port Austin. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about us, please visit cbcportaustin.org. Well, right now you are about 30 minutes or so closer to your death um, than you were when you came in this morning. So super encouraging way to start a sermon, right? Um, But in all seriousness, death is something that we all know is coming, right? We all know it. um, And yet far too many of us kind of ignore the implications of that reality. And that's why as your pastor, I'm constantly trying to remind you that you are dying, right? Just constantly trying to lay that before you. I can't tell you what the weather's going to be like this week. I can't tell you what's going to happen with our government. I can't tell you um, if you're going to get COVID. I I can't tell you any of that, but I can tell you this, you're going to die, right? Like unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die. And so that's something that we should like think about, right? Like if that is coming, like we prepare for every appointment in this life. Um, and yet we know this one's coming. Like it might not come today or tomorrow, but it's coming. And yet how often do we neglect preparation for that appointment? And that's why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, he said, it is better. Listen to this. Who, who says this? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. What? It's better to go to a funeral than to a party, is what he's saying. Why? Because this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, parties are fun, but funerals bring wisdom. Moses in Psalm 90 said this, teach us to number our days. Why? Why is he asking God that? So that we may get a heart of wisdom. You see, there's something about living in light of the end that creates within us a desire to live with wisdom and to make our lives count. There's just something about when someone in your life passes and you go to that funeral and you think about his life or her life and and then you reflect on your own life. There's something about that that in that moment, it makes you want to make your life count. It makes you want to live with wisdom. And in fact, I would argue that pondering the reality of your death should be like a spiritual discipline in your life, similar to prayer and Bible reading. You're probably going to think this is weird, but I will actually get in my car and I will drive to the cemetery and I will drive slowly through the cemetery and and look at the different stones there and read the names and the dates and think about my death. And think about how's it going to end for me and in what kind of legacy am I going to leave for Jesus? Not for me, but for Jesus. We, We should think about our death. Because when we think about our death, it helps us realize that this moment right here is a gift. Right? Like this moment right now, think about this, is a moment that you're never going to get back. And some of you are like, man, why am I spending it here? Right? No, but for real, like this moment right now, it's gone. It's here and it's gone. And and the next moment, it's here and it's gone. And we should cherish these moments. We should thank God for these moments. Death helps us slow down and be present. It helps us to live with intentionality and with thankfulness. Right? When when I realize, man, I might not get another evening with my wife. I want to make this evening count. Right? When we gather with family, maybe for the holidays coming up, and and you're with your family, think about this could be the last gathering. And it's not living with, with a morbid cloud over your head all the time. It's just being thankful for what we have. It reminds us that we shouldn't constantly be looking forward to what's next in our life. 
Because what's next, that might not even come. Like how many of us are living in the future? I know I do all the time. Like, well, when this happens and when this happens and, and when we get, when, when COVID's over, then we can start like, and when is that going to happen? Like, we don't know. And so we, we keep living as if maybe in the future this will happen. It's kind of a joke that um, being an adult is just constantly saying next week things will slow down, right? And then you just say that next week and you say that next week and then you die, right? And you're just kind of like always living in the future. But death reminds us that the future might not come. And, and so I'm often, the scriptures would do this, and I'm often trying to lay before you this reality that you're going to die. And there's another, that, if you could see that kind of as like maybe a negative incentive, maybe something that you don't like to think about, but you should think about. There's another incentive that scripture gives that, that makes us think about the end. And it's not just our death, it's the fact that Jesus is coming again. And in those two realities, you can see maybe one is more negative, that kind of really makes you think, and the other one's more positive, but it also makes you think, and, and it makes you, you wonder, what is it going to be like when I see Jesus, right? Both of them lead to the same thing. We're with God in the presence of God, and, and we give an account for our lives. But the scriptures are going to constantly lay before us, especially in the New Testament, Christ is returning. Jesus is coming back. Live in light of that reality. Right now, Christ is seated on his throne. He's ruling and reigning. But one day, he's going to get back up. And one day, he's going to return to this world and judge, but also make all things new. And this is the great hope of the Christian. That Jesus, our great bridegroom, will return for us, his bride. He will rescue us from this broken world. He will right every wrong. And as the Christmas song says, he will make all sad things untrue. I love that. And this is the reality that Peter is going to remind again and again and again and again throughout this book. Look up. Christ is coming. The end of all things is at hand. He's going to continually try to remind you, hey, this life is short. Like in James, he says, what? Your life is a vapor. You go out in the wintertime and you exhale and it hangs there and it's gone. Compared to eternity, that is life. And so are we doing things that are going to make an investment into eternity? And so the question is, okay, Peter, we know Jesus is coming back. Like, we know that's going to happen. So, like, how do we live in light of that? And that's what Peter is going to focus on here in chapter 4. And we're going to kind of focus most of our attention on 7 through 11. But since we're walking through a book, I just want to briefly read through uh, 1 through 6 and make some comments on that. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says this. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So here Peter again reminds these believers that we worship a suffering Savior. I mean, think about it for a minute. The emblem of our faith is a Roman torture device. You ever thought about that? Like that cross on the wall that we think is like really pretty and nice and we wear it around our necks and we put it on our wall and we, we do all kinds of things with it. Like that's, that's like a torture device. Like that'd be like today just kind of like, oh, you got a cool necklace. What is that? Oh, it's just an electric chair. I like to wear it around my neck. Like what? Like you're weird. Like that, that's what the cross was in the first century. Like, like what, why do Christians prize this, this torture device? Because our Savior was a suffering Savior. And so it shouldn't surprise us as we, his followers, experience suffering, right? As we follow in his footsteps, we're going to experience suffering. And so Peter says, when you suffer and you will, you should fight the difficulty of that suffering with the same mindset 
I like how he says, arm yourselves. It's, it's almost like a weapon um, that we want to we bring in and fight suffering with the same mindset that Christ had. Well, what is that mindset? He, he kind of gave us what that was throughout this book. He said that, that Christ kept entrusting himself in the midst of that suffering, kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Isn't that awesome? How often does suffering take place in our life that is just unjust? It's not fair. And that's what's hard about it. This is just not fair. What did I do to deserve this? Right? And I know that in reality, we all deserve hell. So any suffering in this life is really, we kind of do deserve it. But you know what I mean, right? Like that guy is a jerk and he's never gotten sick. Like what? Like why am I sick? Right? Like that's, that's the kind of feelings we have. But Christ kept entrusting himself to the just judge. He remembered there's a purpose for this. There's a purpose for this. And he believed that God was going to turn it for good. And can I just say, if God took the worst event in human history, which was the death of God on the cross, letting his very creation kill him, if that's the worst event in history, and yet he's brought the most good out of that, out of any, more than any other event in history, then don't you believe he can take a bad event in your life and bring good out of it? So we have to trust him. And, and he says that there's this, this point in suffering where we actually come to this point in our walk with the Lord that we're willing to suffer with Christ instead of sinning. And it's almost as if we make a break with sin. You may have read that and said, he sees us from sinning. What, is that? what does that mean? Like none of us are going to be perfect in this life. But what it's saying is when we get to the point where we're willing to suffer for doing right instead of doing wrong, it reveals within us a resolve and a commitment to live for God's will and not our own. There's this maturing mark in your life with God that I'm willing to suffer for Christ rather than do wrong. And in that sense, we're no longer controlled by the domineering power of sin. Verse three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The Gentiles just refers to the unbelieving world. All right, and, and many of them were Gentiles, but he's like, you're not them anymore. Okay, and this is what they love to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here he says, hey, you've spent enough time in your past living in sinful debauchery. And it's time to make a break with that. It's time to be done with that. Why? Why would we do that? Because we want to shine for Christ in this, in this world. And, and there's a sense in which when we do this, it's going to lead to more suffering. He says, just expect that. Like when, when you stop doing the things that you used to do with your unbelieving friends and coworkers, they're going to be surprised, he says. Hey, well, why aren't you joining us in this, man? What's wrong? You a goody two-shoe now? Like, no, I'm, I'm trying to live for Christ. And so how do we get through this when our unbelieving neighbors and coworkers start to mock us and ridicule us for taking a stand? How do we handle this? We give it to the judge. And we remember that God is going to judge them too. Right? It's like the whole group of, of kids. And when, when you kids get to college, you'll understand this. Like the whole dorm like, is just partying. And um, there's a huge exam tomorrow. And they're all like, ah, forget that. Right? And like, you're like the one guy that's like, I really probably should go study. Um, and they're just like making fun of you. It's like, no, like there's a, there's a, an appointment tomorrow with a judge and like, I got to be ready for that appointment. Like, that's kind of what it's like. And a few times I didn't do that. And I remember the first time 
Like high school, you like don't have to study and just get A's and B's. And then college, it's like 38%. What? What is this? There was a Super Bowl the night before. But anyways, you know what I'm saying? Like when you are the one that kind of stands out and does what's right, people don't like that. Because in a sense, the light exposes the darkness in them. And so they'll malign you, he says. And so what we do is we give that to the judge. And say, God, you see this. I know you see this. And a question for all of us to consider is, this says that everyone is going to give an account before God. Everyone is going to be judged by the judge, just judge. So the question is, like, are you ready for this appointment? Right? Have you had a time in your life where you've recognized your sin before God and you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again? Like, have you had that time? I'm always saying that. I'm always laying that before you. I can't see your heart. I can't see your soul. If you're watching on the live stream, if you've never had a time where you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you will be judged for your sins. Verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Here I think Peter is alluding to some of the mocking and maligning that was taking place. It's almost like the unbelievers were like, you Christians, you know, you talk about your living hope and, and all that stuff, but you still die like the rest of us. Look at all those who are dead. Look at all your Christian friends who are dead now. It's just a big waste. At least I'm going to enjoy my life. And it's almost like that was one of the things they were using to mock, mock people. And it's Peter is reminding these Christians that death may look like a defeat, but it's not the final story. He says the gospel was preached to believers who are now dead. And those believers who are dead, the gospel was preached to the dead. They're going to rise again and live with God forever in the new creation. So don't be shocked um, when, when people mock you and malign you about that. Because the death is not the final story for Christians. Now before moving on to kind of where we want to focus for today, I want to make one application here. It talks about this idea that if, if you'll make a break with sin, if you'll be willing to suffer for righteousness sake, then that, that's a, a mark in your life that you're more committed to God. And it's almost like you can step up to another plateau, um, another time in your life, another spot where you can mature in your walk with him. Um, and so I just want to ask if there's anyone here, and you obviously don't raise your hand, but think about this. Um, is there someone here that maybe is kind of toying with sin right now? You've got that one sin in your life that you just don't want to give up. You've got like this drawer in your life that like everything, I'll give everything to Jesus, but like not this. Like, the, you know, I, I just got to hang on to this a little bit longer. The reality is that you're being controlled by that. It's affecting you in ways that you may not see. And it's time to make a break with it, right? Like give that sin to God. Like repent of that sin and step into the joy that he has for you. I just, I just had to make that. I don't have any one specific in my mind, but I just thought, man, what if today was a day of victory for someone who's just bound by sin and they're not willing to give it up? Make a break today. Make a break with that sin. Step into joy. Step into surrender. Uh, there's nothing like it. For the remainder of the time, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11. And 7 is kind of the key verse that brings all of this together. He says this, the end of all things is at hand. That's why in the beginning I was reminding you of your death. I was reminding you of Jesus coming back because the end of all things is at hand. In other words, all of the major events on God's kind of drama of salvation have been accomplished. The Messiah has come. The rescue is complete and he could return at any moment. Therefore, says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, this is how you ought to live. 
And I really believe that the simple truths he's going to lay out for us have the power to transform your life. As, as, we, as we move even into this message, we're moving closer to the end of all things. Do you understand that? And so how do we live in light of this reality? Well, to simplify it for you, I think Peter says, keep praying, keep loving, and keep serving. So we're going to take those one at a time. He says, first of all, keep praying. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Knowing that Christ could return at any moment, and that we are living in the last days, we ought to have the discipline and mental clarity to guard our prayer lives. Right? Is prayer a priority in your life? I say this all the time, but what doesn't get scheduled doesn't get done. And depending on your season in life, maybe this looks like a large block in the morning with some coffee, or maybe it looks like kind of scattered points throughout the day because you're just... You know, you're just trying to maintain communication with God all day, but, but is prayer a priority in your life? And if you feel like, man, I just don't have time to pray, then you need to cut something out of your schedule. There's nothing more important than connecting with the creator of the world, our Savior, who we're going to stand before one day. And I'm convinced that one of the biggest problems with American Christianity is kind of this excess clutter in our lives. We're amusing ourselves to death with sitcoms, smartphones and social media without realizing the eternal ramifications of our actions. I read this quote to you last week, but it really applies here today as well. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. That's convicting. You see, this is why we need self-control. This is why we need to be sober-minded. We need to be mentally clear and alert. You know, I'm a pastor, so my primary job in the scriptures is the ministry of the word and prayer. And, and there are spots in my home where I'll go to and I will pray for you. I'll come here sometimes and I'll pray for you. But you would just be amazed when I walk into my office and there's kind of this chair over here that I pray. And then there's this desk over here with a computer where I can like get stuff done. You know, like, oh man, and there's just this pole. Right? There's just this pull over to the office, but like, I'm going to get more done there because I don't feel like I got as much done kneeling and praying. When re- in reality, like, what's going to get more done is <laughs> prayer. But there's this, this, this mindset in, in America where we've got to go, 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 go. And so when, when I get pulled over to the desk and think I'm going to get more work done here than praying, I'm, I'm drunk. That's why, that's why Peter says, be sober-minded. Like, wake up, have clarity here. You're, you're drunk by American productivity right now. You honestly think that going and, and, and working on whatever you have to work on for the church is more important than praying. That means you're drunk right now, and you need to wake up. When we go into our house and we haven't spent any time in prayer, and, and we feel that pull to the couch to watch more TV, we're drunk. Wake up. Pray. This is not to guilt trip you. It's to wake us up. End time living. We've got to keep praying. Whether we realize it or not, we have an enemy. And can I just say the one thing he's going to fight the most is prayer. Because he knows prayer is going to do the most damage for him. He doesn't want you to call an airstrike. Right? He wants you to keep fighting in your own strength. Yeah, man. Go to that keyboard. Yeah, you could get more work done there. Yeah, plan and, and work and maybe study more of that sermon a little bit more. And I'm not saying those things aren't important, but, but he's, I'm drunk and the enemy is trying to convince all of us to kind of go away from prayer and into things that are less productive in reality and eternal matters. We need to wake up. The end is at hand. 
We need to get serious about our prayer life. Not only that, he says, keep loving. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. As we get closer and closer to the end, it's going to be harder and harder to live for God. And so along with prayer, God has given us other Christians in our local church to help us live for God. Right? We're not called to do this alone. However, while other Christians can be really encouraging, other Christians can be really frustrating. Right? They can be really annoying at times. Especially in social media where we get to like see all their thoughts on every subject, right? It's like just you don't have to post everything. Like you can right? Like, but anyways, let's move on. Christians can be frustrating. And so he says, keep loving one another and do it earnestly. That has the idea of with intense and sincere conviction. You know, I'm going to love this person with, with sincerity, with intensity. Now, what does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins? What's he talking about there? Well, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're pulling out of church today and um, you see a deer running through the field and you kind of swerve and you just crash into my car. Okay. Um, so you smashed into my car and it's just completely totaled. Um, there's no way that, that it can be driven without repairs. And so let's say this is a habit of yours, okay? And uh, you happen to have really good insurance to cover it. So you're like, man, I'm so sorry, but look, I, I got you, okay? Like, we're going to get this fixed tomorrow. You'll be back on the road by Tuesday. I'm like, okay. You know, in that moment, um, I can forgive you, right? Like, but it's really not going to cost me that much to forgive you, right? Like, you're, you're paying for it. Like, I could be frustrated by the minor inconvenience, but that's not going to cost that much to forgive me, to forgive you. Well, let's say in another scenario that um, you crash into my car and you don't have insurance, which by the way is illegal, so I wouldn't recommend that. Um, but let's say you smash into my car, you don't have insurance, and you come to me and you say, hey, I totaled your car out there. Um, I'm really sorry. I, I can't afford to pay for it. Like in that moment, that's going to cost me a lot to forgive you, like a new car right? Like that's going to cost and somebody's got to pay for it. And so in that moment, when I say, I forgive you, I'm not promising that'll happen, but you know, let's just say for this scenario, let's say I forgive you. I forgave you, but it, it costs me in a significant way, maybe a couple thousand dollars. And I think that's what Peter is alluding to here when he says love just covers it. It just writes the check. It just covers a multitude of sins. In other words, love doesn't make the other person pay up before it's willing to forgive. It covers it. Tim Keller puts it this way, to truly forgive, we have to release the urge to exact payment from the other and make them hurt how we hurt or feel what we felt. Isn't that the urge we get? Like before we forgive, like, no, 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 you got to understand what you did. You got to feel what I felt. You got to feel the hurt that I felt. But love covers it. So often we want to exact payment before offering forgiveness, but that's not the way of love. Christian community is messy and people are going to step on you and they're going to hurt your feelings. They're going to rub you the wrong way. But the end is at hand. Jesus is coming back. We don't have time to hold grudges. We don't have time to, to kind of to, to just coddle up in our bitterness and oh, I'm not going to forgive that person because they, they haven't felt what I felt and they don't know what they did. We don't have time for that. We write the check. We cover it. Now, how in the world do we do that? That's supernatural. Well, we do it by the power of the gospel. 
So I want you to think about this. There is no sin that another Christian can do that Christ's blood has not already paid for. Is that not true? We believe that mentally. But do we believe that on the ground? That your brothers and sisters in this room, all their sins are paid for by the blood of Christ. So who are we if we try to exact payment? Christ has already paid for the sins of that Christian that you can't seem to forgive. The money is in the account. He's paid for it. It's time to write the check. It's time to cover it. We cover the sins of others with love because one much greater has covered all of our sins with his love. So keep loving. In verse 9, he continues, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This could have been a separate point, but I think it's a great description of what loving others would look like, especially in the end times. It looks like inviting people over to your house and doing it without complaining. You know, this is so great. Imagine Peter reading this weighty letter about heaven and hell and suffering and, and living hope. And, and he says, be ready for Christ's return. And the end is at hand. Now imagine saying, okay, Peter, that, that sounds really urgent. Like, what should we do? Well, here's what you should do. Invite each other over and, and don't complain about the hassle. <laughs> like, what? That doesn't sound like cool like, or urgent or like end time. Like, but that's the point. It's radical end time hospitality. Again, living for Christ in these last days is only going to get harder. But one way for Christians to keep loving one another is to show hospitality. Just to invite other Christians over to make your home an oasis where they can escape for a while from the world and maybe lay some burdens down and and you can feed them and you can encourage them and, and you can share your struggles and burdens and we can remind each other about our living hope that we have in Christ. It seems simple, but it's radical. And for Peter's audience... This may have involved letting other Christians like move in because they just got kicked out because they're Christian. They just lost their job. So like, hey, clear out a room and let your brother and sister stay there for a while. Like, I don't think it's too much to ask us to grab a frozen pizza and to throw it in the oven and to grab some paper plates and have some Christians over. Right. Like that. Like and you don't have to do that. You can cook a meal if you can cook or order from the bank. Amen. We love doing that. Right. But, like, it's not that much to ask to have some people over once in a while. And and guess what? It doesn't matter if your house is perfect. It really doesn't. You're probably thinking about it way more than anyone else is. Okay? Like, this this Instagram world that we live in. Like, I can't have people over. Look at my house. Like, no, just forget that. Have some people over. Share some burdens. Help each other get through this life. Keep praying. Keep loving. Lastly, keep serving. Verse 10. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. That's awesome. One of my gifts that I've been given the stewardship of is to speak the word of God. And so I better not get up here and speak my own words. Right? Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You're not called to do what I'm telling you to do today in your own strength. That's just self-help. But this is gospel-centered living. I'm not telling you to write a check and forgive those people in your own strength. You can't do that. I'm not telling you to have people over and share burdens in your own strength. Do it in the strength that God supplies. Why? Why, Peter? Why do we do this? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here, Peter reminds these Christians that each of them have been uniquely gifted by God. Some have speaking gifts. I think this is a helpful way to look at the gifts throughout the scriptures. Some have speaking gifts and others have serving gifts. Okay, but all of them should practice their gift in God's strength and for God's glory. 
Some of you may think that you're not gifted because you can't play the guitar or the cello or you can't play piano or you can't get up and, and preach. But these, th- these happen to be kind of outward gifts, but these are not the most important or better than the other gifts that you have. We all have gifts. Verse 10 says each of us has a gift of grace. This means that you are essential to this church. Like we can't do what God has called us to do without you. Like how cool is that? Right? Like sometimes, again, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but sometimes um, we, we don't realize how important our baby toe is on our foot until we stub it in the middle of the night, right? And it's just like, ah, like that is important. Like all of us are important. We're all members of the body. And don't get bogged down trying to find out exactly what your gift is by like taking all those tests. Those are fun. But in reality, I love this simple definition, um, spiritual gifts, the shape of grace flowing through your God-given individuality. Isn't that awesome? That's what the spiritual gifts look like. I think there's a helpful illustration that my uncle shared with me once. He said, imagine we're having like a potluck here um, and we've got like a chili cook-off, okay? And, and somebody um, gets a plate. Um, let's just say it's Keith, okay? We'll pick on him. He gets a plate of chili in the back and he's kind of coming in and saying hi and he just, just beefs it hard, right? Like chili everywhere. It's a mess. You know, he's red-faced, embarrassed. Like the person with the gift of teaching it's kind of going to lean over to their kids and say, now, kids, you see what happened there? Like, this is why you got to watch where you're walking, right? Like, you just, you see things and you analyze it and you want to teach it. Um, you probably have the gift of teaching, okay? Um, but then there's others who kind of have the gift of serving. And the first thing they're doing is they're running, they're grabbing paper towels, they're, they're cleaning that up. They're, they're trying to get it, you know, all taken care of. They don't like to be in the spotlight. Um, they don't like to talk much, but they just want to kind of be a blessing and serve and, and kind of get in the trash and help. And then there's others who maybe have the gift of mercy, and they don't go to kind of clean up or they don't start teaching. They go and they put their arm around Keith and they say, man, it's okay. Like, it's okay. Like, right, let's just, we're, we're good. You don't have to be embarrassed. Like, you just, I just want to help you through. It's all good, right? Like, that's, that's what spiritual gifts look like in the, in the shape of personality. And it's ordinary stuff like spilling chili and helping each other out. That's radical end time living. That's what I love about this. You have been uniquely gifted by God to serve this church. What a privilege. So be a good steward of that gift. Let God's grace flow through your personality. Together, we are the vehicle God uses to bring Christ to the world. So as we close today, I want to wrap up with this this thought. Start living in light of the end. I think thinking of your death, I think thinking of Christ's return, I think just the end of all things is at hand. Uh, We're getting closer. We're closer now than when we started this service. So I'm going to start living in light of the end. And, and, what I, and what I am doing today, like, is it going to matter for eternity? I always quote that quote, only one life soon shall pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's what matters. And here's the cool thing. As kings and priests is what we're called in scripture. Like changing dirty diapers can be done for Christ. Cutting the grass can be done for Christ. Like going to work this week can be done for Christ, represent Christ. So don't think that you've got to get up on stage and start doing stuff here. There's no, there's no divide between sacred and secular in the Bible. We, we just serve him all throughout it. Start living in light of the end. We don't know how much longer we have. Christ could return at any moment or you could pass without warning. So keep praying. Keep loving. Keep serving. Dwell on the certainty of the end for a moment. How does that reality shape your life? I think, first of all, are you ready to meet God? 
Have you ever had a time where you've accepted his gift of salvation, where you've trusted in Jesus alone? Do you need to get serious about praying? Is there a broken relationship you need to mend? Is there a coworker you need to share the gospel with? Is there a ministry you need to get involved in? The end of all things is at hand. So start living in light of the end.